Well, in order to make it complete, we need one more foundation of mindfulness. Uh, we've had mindfulness of the body, and then we took the last one, the fourth one, mindfulness of the content of thought, and then mindfulness of the emotions, and we have one more, of the mindfulness of moods. It's called um, Shitta Vipassana, uh, Shitta Nupassana, sorry, and uh, which actually translated verbally would mean mindfulness of mind. But um, after many uh, years of practice, it's become quite clear to me, mindfulness of mind, well, what, what are you going to do with that? It's the mood that we are in. Now, again, one time more about the mindfulness. That is something not to forget. Without that, there is no path. It doesn't matter whether you know the four of this and the five of that and the seven of this and the eight of that or the twelve of this or the thirteen or the thirty-seven, it really makes no difference. If you forget mindfulness, you have no spiritual path. And as far as mindfulness is concerned, yes, body, of course. But the work is the changing of the unwholesome to the wholesome in thought as well as in emotion. And as long as we identify with what we think and feel, it's difficult. It's very difficult to change it. But as we identify, we think, I am that. Well, how am I going to change this, I am that? But it's not true. We are not that. We are something entirely different. We are actually all what we would like to be. We have the inner purity. We have the seed of enlightenment. We have clarity. We have all that. We have joy. We have peace. We just aren't aware of it. That's all. So this is the main aspect of practicing besides sitting on a little pillow. That's only a means. A main aspect is to know about oneself and change the unwholesome to the wholesome. It's only habit. And as we change our habits, we are changed person. And we feel happier, of course. And the people around us feel happier. Because happiness is just as contagious as unhappiness. Both very contagious. So one is a contagious disease, the unhappiness. And the other one is a benign influence. So we should choose wisely huh? all the time. And it's entirely up to us. We can't wait for somebody to have that benign influence on us. I mean, they're few and far between. We're better the ones to have the benign influence. 
the uh, foundation of mindfulness, which is called Shitta Nupasana, and which is our mood, is um, easily explained, and um, it's also very helpful to become aware of in mindfulness, but it's a little more difficult. And yet, if we do become aware of our underlying moods, underlying tendencies which are expressed in our moods, and can already change that from the unwholesome to the wholesome, we don't have to start dealing with unwholesome thought or unwholesome emotions. Now, there are people, innumerable people, who have an inherent tendency for negative moods. They just don't think things are right. Well, that's a true statement. Things aren't right. But there's no need to become negative about it. But some people have that as a tendency which they might have brought with them as a karma resultant. Or it may be a karma resultant of their habitual thinking. It can be anything. That doesn't matter. If we have that, we really need some, we really need to do something about it. There are other people who have the inherent tendency, and I've mentioned that already, that their mood is quite happy and joyous, but it also gives them a wrong impression. Both things don't give the right impression. The negative tendency for the mood gives the impression as if everybody is really pretty difficult and life is difficult and one has to constantly shoulder the burden and uh, one also always looks for a scapegoat. Very difficult not to look for a scapegoat. And of course there are some uh, primary scapegoats which uh, are very fashionable, particularly the mother and the teachers and uh, God knows what else one thinks about. In some instances, it's the church that becomes a scapegoat. Also not very useful. I mean, what do you need a scapegoat for? It's an inherent tendency of a negative mood. That's all it is. That's really all it is. And sometimes this inherent tendency for negative mood will result in depression, which is very extreme then. And as it results in depression, which means that we have really let go, of trying to change it, um, it's more difficult to get out of. It doesn't have to result in depression. It can just result in uh, dislike, rejection, unhappiness, worry. It usually, practically always, results in trying to prove oneself. To whom and as what? whatever one has chosen. Whatever one has chosen as one's uh, most important aspect in life that one now has to prove that one is really good at it. And that's supposed to uh, change that inherent negative mood that one is in. It doesn't, doesn't do a thing. It's very momentary. If somebody praises this, uh, um, whatever we're doing, then we have a momentary change. But it doesn't change the underlying mood. Now then, the opposite, 
that joyous and happy mood which can be extremely useful also results in an extreme which we have talked about when I talked about the um, mindfulness of content and the mindfulness of emotion it results in the extreme of trying to believe that everything is just wonderful oh, we've talked about that already which is equal nonsense nothing is absolutely wonderful I've said that already other than the enlightened one so that part of our extreme um, connection to things will never make it possible to see things as they really are if we want to see things as they really are we need to have a more equitable mood we must uh, be able to rely on our inner equilibrium so that we can actually harmonize within so that we don't constantly have to look outside of ourselves now the person that is uh, on that last extreme with a happy and joyful mood finds it easier to live it's easier to live with but inside very difficult very difficult to gain inside can usually do loving kindness very well and uh, not so much trouble with the jhanas but inside very difficult extremely difficult so we need to if we want to find out what our inherent basis basic mood is really inquire into it and see how often do I have a mood which tells me everything is awful and how often do I have a mood which tells me everything is fantastic and both are wrong neither one of them have any basis in fact now if we catch the mood before we start finding a cause for it a reason there is no cause or reason it's just a mood but before we, before we actually make out a cause or a reason we can change it right then and there to something which is at ease it contains a sense of well-being things are the way they are and that's fine and if there's anything to be changed it's only me the rest I can't change anyway everybody will have to do it themselves if we talk about people our example might help perhaps sometimes but if we try to be an example I can assure you it doesn't work that's a guarantee if that what we do is an example of the way we are that's fine but if we set out to be one no because that again is so much caught up in our me identification that it can't possibly work properly so here we have a mindfulness um, recognition which goes deeper than 
the content of thought and deeper than our emotions. It goes to that which is underlying both. And we need not look for a trigger. With our unwholesome thoughts and unwholesome emotions, we usually look for a trigger. And if we haven't practiced long enough, we blame the trigger. This is something that needs to be remembered. Again, if you don't remember all these fives, fours, nines, eights, it doesn't matter. But remember, don't blame the trigger. The trigger has got nothing to do with it. Has absolutely nothing. All it tells you, the trigger, is that it triggers something within. That's all it tells you. It does, it's not the one to blame, it's not at fault. It's got nothing to do with anything, actually, other than that the world has come near. Now, sometimes people can't deal with certain triggers. And without having tried to deal with them, they try to get rid of them. That's not the right way to do it. If one practices, one needs to first try and deal with the triggers. Deal with them in a way where one has compassion, love, helpfulness, all the positive emotions towards that unpleasantness. And if it then doesn't work, if one becomes negative over and over again, then the Buddha said it's best to remove oneself from that trigger, but without blaming the trigger, with the understanding that one just hasn't grown enough in this practice in order to deal with that particular trigger. And one can go back to it later and deal with it, or not go back to it at all, but not to blame the trigger. If you, do, if you remember that, don't blame the trigger, and you actually use it, you will know what goes on within you. Now, the unwholesome thoughts and the unwholesome emotions are not that difficult to recognize. And maybe if we let go of blaming or scapegoat, anything like that, we don't identify. And if we don't identify, we can change. But with the mood, it's a different story altogether. There's no trigger necessary. It just is. And very often it is like that from way back, since we were very, very small, without any cause or condition other than karmic resultant. So we have no trigger that we can find, other than we go look for it, of course. But by that time, we have already started thinking unwholesomely, or emoting unwholesomely. So if we want to avoid both of those, it's no use looking for, for any scapegoat. There's no reason for that underlying mood, other than that it's there. And if we can catch that before we go a step further, which is very quick, and the mood is there, 
the thought why it is so and what it is and all the rest of it and the emotion comes very quickly but when we really practice we can go back to the mood and see it for what it is and realize that it has been the cause and the trigger for the thought and the emotion and change the mood it's more difficult more difficult to change that but then there's no reason why we shouldn't try the more difficult things none whatsoever everybody can do the easy things people nowadays can do easy things when they're four and five years old press a button and you have a television going or the video going no problem at all and but if we actually come to practice we do need more difficult challenges so we have that as our fourth foundation in their proper order as they are usually mentioned by the Buddha the first one is mindfulness of the body the second one emotion third one mood fourth one content of thought that's their proper order I didn't use that order because I wanted to use it the way I felt was more useful now again we have here karmic resultants with which we have to deal and making karma every negative mood makes negative karma and we are also of course faced with dealing with it because they're there so there's nothing more important in one's own life than to deal with these things as quickly as one can if we allow the mood to settle very difficult to get rid of it and most people allow the mood to settle because they've always done it and as they've always done it of mm-hmm. course the thoughts and the emotions are there and in equal um, measure and in the same way as the mood was there if we realize that we need not identify with any of that we can change it if we identify with it that's the way I am or that's me there's no way we can change it the stronger the identification the harder it is to change if you look at it in an objective way as an observer of what's going on it's not so difficult to change if we are the observer of the whole thing so this is um, or these are the most important aspects of the first of the seven sectors of enlightenment now it isn't as if we hadn't mentioned in this time some of the other factors as they come up in the mindfulness 
and particularly the second sector, the second sector of enlightenment is the inquiry into dhammas. Now here the word dhammas means phenomena, the inquiry into truth, into the phenomena, the second sector of enlightenment. Now, there's only one, or there are only three things uh, meant with inquiry into the Dhammas. And they are Anicca Dukkanata, impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and substancelessness, qualitiveness, no self. Now, we've talked about impermanence, quite a... Um, detailed and uh, quite a lot and I've talked about non-self or substancelessness corelessness but we haven't taken a good look at Dukkha yet we've mentioned it but it hasn't been um, in detail and it's a very important subject It's um, the Buddha's enlightenment statement, the Four Noble Truths, which he um, formulated under the famous Bodhi tree in what is now Bodhgaya, after having sat there for a week in meditation, and then one day coming out of the jhanas, and formulating the Four Noble Truths. They are in telegram style, the whole teaching, the Four Noble Truths. And they deal with Dukkha. So there we have one um, exposition of it. There's another mention of it which is an important mention and that is in the dependent origination of which there are dozens of dependent originations there's a whole section of the Samyutta Nikaya which is called the Samyutta Nidana the Samyutta Nikaya is the, the Nikaya means collection and the Samyutta Nikaya is the collection of related subjects. Now obviously the Buddha didn't do that. It was all done later so that one can find one's way through the Pali Canon a little easier because it does consist of 17,500 discourses so it's not that easy to find one's way through there. And uh, eventually one has to. One has to know what is important and how it all fits together which is not so easy with 17,500 discourses, but they do repeat themselves. So the Samyutta are a thematic collection, is the translation. It's collected together by themes. And one part of the Samyutta is the Samyutta Nidana. Nidana is dependent arising, or Nidana Samyutta. And so there are dozens of dependent origination not just one or two but dozens of them 
And sometimes the Buddha starts, as he usually does, with one particular point. Sometimes he starts, so to say, right in the middle. And sometimes he leaves out a few and puts his emphasis on a few more. So in that we find the depend arising, which is nothing other than a very um, elaborate or more elaborate explanation of the Four Noble Truths. Depend origination is elaboration on the Four Noble Truths. Four Noble Truths is so to say the core, the kernel, and then depend arising is the elaboration. Eventually one does need to know these things, but first one has to, have to practice a bit, because otherwise one isn't interested. If one isn't practicing, one isn't going to be interested, the other one is absolutely intellectual and wants to find out the whole intellectual part of the whole thing. But that doesn't help anybody. So, the depend origination, or the two depend originations which are best known, because they're most often repeated, doesn't mean that they're more important than the others, uh, is the worldly and the transcendent, Lokya and Lokutra. And with these two, we find a marked difference. It's very interesting that marked difference. That difference. The first one, the worldly dependent arising, which was briefly mentioned in one of the questions also, starts out with ignorance, goes through the whole rigmarole of what we uh, experience day in and day out, and comes back to our own death, and underneath it is usually written, usually shown in a picture. It's uh, a picture of a, a circle, and the circle is usually in the Tibetan tradition, very uh, colorful and interestingly uh, designed. And underneath it usually says, and this is how the whole Dukkha arises, from ignorance through that whole rigmarole of rebirth and craving and clinging and becoming and then uh, dying again. So it is a circular motion. And where does a circle lead us? Nowhere. It always goes back to the circle, doesn't it? doesn't go anywhere. Always round and round and round. Which is another reason why we can go in this world, in this little planet of ours, anywhere. It's round. We're always going to come back to where we are anyway. It doesn't have to be physically, but in here. Circles don't lead us anywhere. But the transcendental dependent arising, Lokutra, is the one that goes in a straight line. It's not shown as a circle. And it starts out with Dukkha. And it ends with Nibbana. And again, it's a very uh, exact and very um, detailed elaboration of the Four Noble Truths. So we'll have a look at that uh, aspect. Now it starts out with Dukkha. Why? People who haven't heard the Buddha's teaching before or haven't heard much of it are apt to say, and one can't really blame them for that, that, oh, that's a very negative teaching. It's all about Dukkha. It's all about suffering. Also, they don't 
translate dukkha as unsatisfactoriness it's usually translated as suffering so people say oh very very negative no, no don't want to do have anything to do with that i've got enough dukkha as it is i don't want to hear about it oh, well. okay well that's the end of that one we don't go any further don't want to hear about it okay now if you then have the misfortune to listen to somebody like me you will hear about it and uh, there are some explanations which will show quite clearly that the buddha did not have suffering in mind when he was explaining it in order to make people suffer he had exactly the opposite in mind but exactly in mind that to talk about dukkha would eventually show people how to get out of it and that's all that's really important he said there's only one thing i teach and that suffering and how it's end to reach dukkha and how it's end to reach only one thing i teach so every method everything we've talked about all the contemplations all the mindfulness everything that you may remember or not remember it's all has only one goal one direction to recognize dukkha and to eventually get out now the recognition of dukkha and this is the most important part to start out with is so to say the necessary entry for going on a spiritual path i mean why else do i want to prove to my neighbors that i'm so spiritual or to my family or um, is everything else boring so i'm going to have some entertainment or i have my friends said it's very good to meditate so now i'm going to meditate none of this are sufficient reasons to keep it going they might be sufficient reasons to give it a go and then do something else which happens often enough for thousands of people who do take a meditation course one can count the people who continue with it you can't count thousands because there are thousands of them everywhere but those that really do it uh, you can count them and the only reason that one will really do it is one knows i have dukkha that's the only reason why one will do it now there's another um uh, sort of tail end to that sentence which is necessary i know i have dukkha and i know that i've tried all worldly aspects and possibilities to get out of it and nothing worked it's all short-lived it's all sensual pleasure through the senses Now if one doesn't have that tail end one is undoubtedly going to try all sorts of other things travel tai chi uh crystals um what else is going at the moment <laughs> I have no end to this stuff I haven't read any of these magazines lately so I'm not so well up on it um no end what one can try oh a new relationship of course that's uh, that's always very very um uh, fashionable any time always 
same in the Buddha's time. Hasn't changed. I mean, that was two and a half thousand years ago, the same thing. There was a, uh, he had a cousin. His name was Nanda. Not Ananda, but Nanda. And Nanda couldn't make up his mind whether he was going to get married or whether he was going to be a monk. So finally his parents got sick and tired of this, dilly-dallying around, and arranged the marriage for him. And the Buddha was invited as a guest of honor. And so then he had his meal, and then he said to Nanda, Nanda, come and carry my arms pulled back for me to the uh, monastery. And of course, you know, it was very difficult for Nanda to say no. So uh, he did carry it, and then he got halfway. He said to the Buddha, well, how long is it? You know, I've got to get back there. I'm getting married. And the Buddha said, it doesn't matter. I'll wait for you. Come on. And uh, <laughs> so they kept going. And again he asked, and again he was told the same thing. And uh, then when they finally got to the monastery, the Buddha said to him, well, why do you want to get married? And he said, oh, a very beautiful woman, and uh, I really love her, and she's really a wonderful person. We said, well, if you stay in the monastery and really practice, you can meet easily 500 that are far more beautiful and far more wonderful. And Nanda said, really? Is that so? And Buddha said, yep. So, um, so Nanda stayed. And uh, every once in a while I went to the Buddha and said, well, where are these 500 beautiful women? The Buddha said, well, I told you to practice, didn't I? So he kept on practicing, and then, of course, when he finished practicing, he didn't need 500 beautiful women anymore. So we have exactly the same thing then as we have now. And the Buddha said, in that connection, it doesn't matter why we come to the practice. Well, Nanda evidently came for the wrong reasons. He wanted 500 beautiful women. Um, so, but he said it didn't matter, as long as we come and really practice. So if we have gained enough understanding, and it does take some years to be, uh, years of life and being uh, enmeshed in the ordinary daily activities, that one sees that there is Dukkha in me, and in the world they don't have any remedy for that. I've tried the most obvious ones, and they didn't work. and one isn't willing to try new ones. Or one can't think of any new ones. It's also a reason. Some people can think of new ones all the time. But if one has lost the imagination and lost the willingness to look for the relief of Dukkha in the world, then one is ready to practice. And so this is actually the very first step on this transcendental dependent arising that one understands one's own dukkha and one understands it as deeply and as profoundly as is possible one of the dukkha things that people very rarely understand within themselves is restlessness they can't keep at one thing they always have to do something else that's that inner restlessness because there isn't enough joy inner joy enough peace now restlessness only disappears completely for the arahant so you can see how ingrained that is always something else something different 
it gets greatly helped when our meditation comes together to the point of the uh, absorption because then we can let go of restlessness for the time of meditation and relate to that state of not being restless at least in the mind if we haven't got that to fall back on restlessness remains and that restlessness it becomes less as we have past moments but that restlessness also makes us look for scapegoats there aren't any there are no scapegoats anywhere Dukkha is the first noble truth and this is um, very important I mean they are the, the core and essence of the Buddha's teaching but it's not important because of that or in that way it's important to remember it to know it that all existence is Dukkha now when we are able to accept that and to see it in an objective way we don't have to suffer from it I mean just the way it is existence is Dukkha there's always something that is changing and therefore creates friction things that change create friction there's always something that could be better rarely does an ordinary person have a feeling of fulfillment at least very rare there's always something that could be other it could be shorter or longer it could be hotter or colder it could be more or less it could be more pleasant it could be more beautiful there's always something that inner feeling of total fulfillment escapes everyone only the enlightened one has it so even the non-returner one step before enlightenment still has restlessness which shows how ingrained that is so that dukkha that we have to recognize does not mean that we are faced with a tragedy we can be but it doesn't mean that it can mean that too and it doesn't mean that we have um, a life-threatening illness or that we've just lost the lover or anything like that doesn't mean any of these it means that inner feeling of being not fulfilled not totally at ease always hoping for something more and better trying to find out how to get it that inner yearning for something which we can't actually name we have tried humanity has tried to name it have given it all sorts of names and made that into traditional dogma into which, to which one should adhere one has in the past one doesn't seem to at the present one has made that into for instance paradise heaven anything like that these are just words in order to get that get a, give a name to the inner yearning 
which is the unfulfillment, the lack of being totally sure and clear. So the uh, first noble truth tells about that. And again, it isn't meant for us to feel uh, depressed about it or in any way um, feel unhappy about that. It is meant for us to see it for what it is, accept it, and then practice. It's a spur to practice. Without the understanding of Dukkha, we don't have enough urgency. Some Vega in Pali has not enough urgency because the person who is not um, very negative will constantly live in the hope that something nice is going to happen. And something nice will happen eventually. And so they look for the nice things to happen instead of practicing. It happens to most people. And uh, until the day that one is finally convinced this isn't going to do it either. I've got to practice. The second noble truth belongs to the first one and it says there's only one single reason for dukkha and that's craving. Craving also means, of course, wanting to get rid of. It doesn't just mean wanting to have, it means wanting to get rid of. And that's exactly what I've just said. There's always something that should be different. We aren't totally fulfilled. But when the Buddha speaks about craving, he means three exact things, three particular things. And the main thing is, or the two main things, the craving for sensual gratification and the craving to be. Now we've talked about already about the craving to be. The third one is the craving not to be, which is only the other side of the same coin and which arises when things go entirely wrong and uh, we say, oh, I'd rather be dead. It doesn't change anything. As long as we think it's me being dead, we haven't changed the thing. In fact, all we have done is become negative. That's all. So we shouldn't think ever, which is also done sometimes, that the opposite of the craving to be, which will result in letting go of the craving to be, is the craving not to be. Should never think like that. Because it's the same mistaken view as the craving to be. There's got to be somebody there for to be and there's somebody there not to be. So we can't um, eliminate our craving to be with our wanting to be dead. And besides we've already um, discussed that the only thing that dies is the body anyway. So we're not changing anything. The opposite of the craving to be is to let go of the me illusion. That's the answer to that. So it's one sentence which takes lifetimes 
to actualize. I would say, and I always think, that those people who do come to the meditation courses have had lifetimes of practice and that they have a very good chance at this point in time to get rid of that illusion. In fact, I often sort of play with this imagination that we were all there when the Buddha was talking and it didn't go in. (laughs) We heard it, but we didn't do it. So here we are again. And now we hear it, and in this time we might do it. It's possible. 2,500 years is not a very long time as far as humanity or the universe go. Meantime, of course, we've been around several times, many times. So this is only um, a personal um, imagination. There's no basis in fact for any of that, what I just said. But I sometimes think like that. And uh, I also, a little bit of the basis in fact comes about because sometimes I get the feeling as if I had known some of the people that come to the courses and uh, actually they are the ones I've never seen before. So that type of thing does happen and I think everybody has that kind of experience, the deja vu, that we have seen somebody and actually we don't know that person at all. These are all past lifetimes connections. and. Uh, if these past lifetime connections are useful in the spiritual path, by all means, follow them up. But if they're not, go wide, well, far away from them. They only bring the same karmic uh, entanglement that they did in the past. Very difficult to sort out. The, um, the second noble truth then has those three cravings as the underlying factor of its statement. But what we really experience is that when we want something, we have dukkha. And when we don't want something, we have dukkha. And that needs to be investigated, experienced, lived through, and changed. Every time we want something, we are experiencing a lack, otherwise we wouldn't want it. So there's something missing, and we think we're going to get it if we only got this thing, or this person, or this result. We'll be fine if we get that. And then we get it. And how long are we fine? Immediately the mind makes up a new lack, something new. It gets babies, makes up new things, and then we've got to do that again. And then we get that, and then we have to do another one. So we should see that the wanting is dukkha, because it's the manifest as a lack, and also manifest as the insecurity of whether we're going to get it, and the insecurity whether we can keep it. None of that is sure. And we said we don't want something, it's very easy because that's rejection. And that, of course, is not happiness producing. It's uh, very easy to see that. 
So actually, this is how mankind lives. Humanity lives like that, wanting and not wanting. And the whole day is usually spent with that kind of emotion. Even though we do all sorts of things, physically or even mentally, we still have those emotions. And if we notice those and become aware of them, that will actually tell us what dukkha is. It's not tragedy, can be, it's not losing what the very important people, it is that. These small things that happen day in and day out. And even though we may have a very good situation to live in, and most likely everybody here does, there's still dukkha. And it's nobody's fault. It just is. Now, then, when we can recognize it for what it is, we will also recognize how we usually deal with it. The most um, popular way of dealing with dukkha, I've already mentioned several times, we find a scapegoat. Very often that scapegoat is the person we live with. Physically near, best known, and uh, very easy to use. If we don't like to do that because we have realized that it uh, creates disharmony, we use a person that's a little further removed physically. If we can't find a person, we use situations that must be at fault. So it's our most popular way of dealing with dukkha. It doesn't get us anywhere, it goes around in a circle. And we have already talked about that. But we also have other means of dealing with dukkha. And the most um, famous one, or the most used one, and the one that the Buddha said overshadows dukkha so that we don't see it anymore, is movement. Now you can see that in the sitting position. If it becomes very unpleasant, we move. Or in sleep. Obviously, the body becomes uncomfortable, there's no doubt about it. So the mind makes it move. Movement is that which creates a veil over dukkha. A movement necessarily physical, and in a sitting position it would be physical. Or going on a, on a journey, going to a different country. Uh, seeing uh, different sites. Tourism is a result of dukkha. <laughs> also creates dukkha, of course, but it's a result of dukkha. And uh, just that we know that isn't going to stop anybody. It's just going to continue. Because people think by moving they can change their dukkha. And they do. They change the dukkha from one to another dukkha. It's um, very easy to see when people travel. They've got all sorts of things they've got to look after. And none of them are very pleasing. And then they finally see some very interesting sight 
And so that's an interesting sense contact. So all our movements, everything we do, and this is something that really needs to be investigated, is designed to take us out of Dukkha. Now that makes short thrift of our idea that we want to help others. We want to, there's no doubt about it. And we can if we give them what we've got. But it is still underlying all. It's still that movement. Movement from one thing to another. Because just sitting in our room maybe and contemplating Dukkha, people who do have not accepted it as part and parcel of life itself will get more Dukkha instead of being able to go out and do something which appears to be good. That does not mean that the Buddha said not to do that. Go right ahead. Helping others is the most important thing to do. But he said, find out what's underlying all. Underlying all is Dukkha. Because when we think, for instance, when we think of another person, we can't think about our own Dukkha. So it's very helpful. The same goes for generosity, which is the first of the uh, ten virtues which the Buddha recommended to practice. And the first one is always one which opens the door, so to say. A generosity means that we're thinking of another person. So we don't have to think about our own dukkha at that time. We don't even have to feel that little niggling feeling within which tells us that we haven't quite got what we really want. We're concerned now with the well-being of another person. Very good. Or we should do that. But should know that it's only a cover, a cover-up. When we realize that it's a cover-up, it doesn't mean that we stop doing it. When we realize it's a cover-up, we realize what Dukkha really is. Dukkha is the identification with a special separate entity. That's our Dukkha. Now we have talked about that, the uh, identification, and this is underlying the whole thing that's underlying the craving to be and that's underlying, of course, our sensual gratification. So that is Dukkha. And everything we do, everything, is designed to quieten this underlying knowledge so that it doesn't become so pronounced that we actually know it. When we actually know it, we've got to do something about it. And most people are so habituated to being somebody and becoming somebody. Whatever they do, they want to become somebody. That the mind doesn't really like to admit that this is the cause of all Dukkha. 
when we have meditated successfully and have been able to experience the um, higher jhanas, we have a momentary experience of nobody being there, but it's very momentary. And we still have an observer. So we still have something to identify with. But we have an, a little bit of an uh, example of what this could be like. So that will usually also spur on the uh, practice and the uh, um, the underlying third hindrance of loss and torpor will be less pronounced because we know there is something that can be done. So we have a very good way of finding out whether the Buddha's words are correct or not. He said, everything that exists is dukkha and there's only one cause and that's craving. Is it true? Can we find it? Can we find that cause and realize it's dukkha? If we can't, we really need to do more contemplation on that. Because the third noble truth then says that there is a way out of dukkha, a complete elimination, which is called Nibbana in Sanskrit Nirvana, in Pali Nibbana. Literally translated, Nibbana means non-burning. It doesn't mean non-I, it just means non-burning, no passion. But there we come across a difficulty which again and again people find hard to overcome. I would like to get out of Dukkha. But in order to get out of Dukkha, I've got to let go of I. It's like a paradox, isn't it? The Buddha said, there's a deed but no doer. There's suffering but no sufferer. There's a path but no one to enter. And there's Nibbana but no one to achieve it. That doesn't mean that nobody can reach Nibbana, on the contrary. But it means that in order to experience even a smattering of it, which one does in the first two-path moment, um, there has to be a momentary total elimination of any identification. Now, in order to get to that, um, maybe come a little nearer, draw a little nearer to that, one needs to inquire about one's own death, which we have talked about already, and see whether one is willing to be dead now, right now, but not because life is terrible, life is awful but because one is willing to let go of everything that constitutes life for oneself 
which is a totally different ballgame. The two have nothing in common. And then, having a look to see what one is clinging to and hanging on to, which makes it impossible to be dead now. Which is one way of looking to see where the difficulty lies. We can use our death, but we can also use the imagination for Nibbana. I explained already that every architect needs a blueprint. We need a blueprint. And we need more than the blueprint of the Buddha's words. We need a blueprint in our own mind. What do we think it's like? What could it be like? to be without this me. Can we have an idea that to be without me would be absolutely wonderful, heaven, or whichever words we like to use, a great boon, real peace, whatever words you like, doesn't matter. Can you imagine not having any me within for just a moment. If there's no me, what do you want to become? There's nothing to become. You already are. And this is what drives everybody. Becoming someone. There's an awful lot of pressure on. We think somebody's putting the pressure on. The boss or the cost of living, or uh, the enormous traffic, whatever we think puts the pressure on. None of that has anything to do with it. We put the pressure on. We put the pressure on to become somebody. And the minute we have one second, or even one millisecond, of not identifying with anybody in there, but just being there, the pressure is off. There's no pressure. You don't have to become anything. Now, of course, the me comes back right away, doesn't it? And as it comes back, the only pressure that we should allow to be on is the pressure to practice. So that the me will eventually finally disappear. A person without that identification is of benefit, so the Buddha said, to the whole of humanity. It's the um, enlightenment principle which does not disappear. The personality of the one who has um, had that experience disappears, of course, at death. But the enlightenment principle always stays around. And so there is a possibility, and the Buddha said this is a, not only a possibility, but it's a fact, that one person comes enlightened, helps the whole of humanity. 
when I visited the holy places in India, the holy places are those which um, where the Buddha had some uh, important uh, happening and which he recommended that one should visit. The first one one usually goes to is Lumbini, his birthplace. And uh, there's nothing much there to admire. And uh, I found the place, um, well, just a place. I wasn't uh, overwhelmed by anything. I just thought, oh, well, that's nice. This is where he was born. That's what the legend says. And there's a um, column there put up by King Asoka with writing on it saying that the Buddha was born there. And then we went to other places where he gave his first discourse in Bodhgaya where he became enlightened and um, Isipatana where he gave his first discourse. And eventually we wound up in Kusinara, which is where he died. And there is a stupa there, which was um, built over his cremation place. He was cremated there. And then the stupa was built over it. It's half ruined, but half there. And what one usually does is one uh, circumambulates this uh, stupa walks around it with one's right shoulder towards the stupa. That's a traditional way of um, honoring this place. And as I did that, I felt enormous energy coming through my feet, from the ground, up through my feet, all the way up to the crown of my head. And I thought, gee, that's interesting. And having finished circumambulating, which takes probably five minutes or maybe less than five minutes, came out to the front again, and we were a group of 80 people, of whom at least half had never meditated in their lives. And all 80 were sitting there meditating, and nobody had said a word about it, including some kids, 12 years, 10 years old, who were sitting meditating. And I thought, oh, well, that's lovely, we'll sit down too. So we sat down and meditated. And then, when we finished that, I had some of my Sri Lankan students there with me. And uh, one of them said, gee, I felt this enormous energy here. And then the other said, yes, we did too. And then they said, and how come we didn't feel that at Lumbini? Why are we feeling it here? And I quickly thought, and I said, yeah, but in Lubini, the Buddha wasn't enlightened. He was born there, but he wasn't enlightened. And here in Kusinara, he was fully enlightened. So it wasn't just me feeling that. It was the these ladies that I talked to. There were six of them, I think. Six or eight, I can't remember. Uh, felt exactly the same and everybody else must have felt something because they all sat down and were meditating 80 people right there on the ground and um, I don't know what they did in their meditation but they all looked uh, very um, uh, peaceful <laughs> which is not easy to do in India to look peaceful <laughs> it's uh, uh, quite a difficult uh, terrain to uh, travel in. So that um, 
has uh, strengthened my understanding this particular happening uh, has strengthened my understanding that the enlightenment principle of one person well of course the Buddha is especially strong but uh, of any person is there for all of us to relate to if this is our direction the same as I said about the universal or cosmic consciousness whatever we have in here we can actually gain support from the cosmic consciousness as an echo we all have the seed of enlightenment within we can gain support as an echo if that's our direction so it is not um, out of the question to have a idea we are usually full of ideas I mean we've got ideas what we want to eat we have ideas how we want to entertain ourselves we've got ideas whom we want to be with we have ideas where to travel to why not have an idea what it's like to be enlightened I mean what stops us from that I can see no good reason at all I mean the head is full of ideas everybody's head so why not have a useful idea like that so what could it possibly be like to be there and not feel that this is me but just to be there and obviously one can imagine that one wouldn't have to react one wouldn't have to react to anything because there's nobody there of course the Buddha also reacted when he wanted to he chose to react so that people would know what they were supposed to do and what not to do in fact, his uh, monks behaved so badly one time, uh, doing all sorts of very uh, bad things, that he said, all right, that's enough, I've had enough. I'm going in the forest, and you can look after yourself, fend for yourself. And he did. So he re- reacted. But because he wanted to give them a lesson, reacted when he wanted to. So if there's nobody in there, we don't have to react to all these bits and pieces that happen constantly to everybody. Everybody has constant things happening within. Watch them, look at them, become aware of them. Imagine what it's like to be enlightened. Preferably during one's lifetime. to start we'll put the attention on the breath for just a few moments first thing I'd like you to do is investigate within yourself whether you can find your most prevailing underlying mood the one that you most often encounter which then gives rise to thought and emotion
and if you can find that underlying mood and be aware of it like you to change it to one of equanimity ease acceptance And now I'd like you to have a look at any dukkha within yourself that you are aware of at this moment. If you haven't got one at this moment, something that you'd rather have different from the way it is, then anything that can come up in your memory that happened yesterday, the day before, a week ago. Any dukkha that you have felt, bring it back up. And then, find the craving the wish that whatever it is that creates dukkha should be different that it shouldn't be the way it is and then drop the wish and let it be and as you drop the wish that it should be different can you recognize that the dukkha disappears as long as the wish has disappeared now look at anything in your life whatever it may be that you don't find satisfactory that creates dissatisfaction and as soon as you found it whatever it may be or several things drop the wish that they should be different
can see whether there is relief and relief. And now investigate what is it that you're most attached to, clinging to, which prevents you from the actual acceptance that we could or be did today. What is it that is your most definite clinging? Take a good look at it. The opposite of clinging is not indifference. It's being at ease, equanimity, acceptance. Now having found that which is your most definite clinging, can you realize whether this clinging gives you happiness or not. If it doesn't give happiness, Can you for a moment imagine that you drop that clinging, that it's not yours, it's neither me nor mine, it just is existence.
Now take a look at the dukkha in the world. Anything you can think of. Not difficult. There's so much of it. Try to see how it comes about. What is it that makes people create dukkha for others? What is it in that person? Why do people react with dukkha? Have a look at whatever you can think of. And now have another look. Can you think of anyone that doesn't have dukkha? Any dukkha at all? Anyone you know? Now come back to yourself and investigate and have a look. What you usually do or have done in the past in order to lighten the dukkha or eliminate it momentarily or not having to confront it. What are your usual patterns? Can you realize that all, all of these actions of movement in mind or body or both are designed to overshadow dukkha? Can you see it? And now have a look whether you can agree with the Buddha's enlightenment statement that existence is dukkha, not just because you believe him, because you've seen it, that there's only one cause, 
that craving and that's the answer is the elimination of the me illusion can you say so because you've seen it or is it still a matter of confidence in the Buddha? Mm. 